Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, traditional Greek culture has been preserved in Tarpon Springs for more than a century. Most of the people there do speak Greek, and they get up in the morning and have Greek food and sweep out their courtyards, which have various plants you might see in Greece, you know, and they'll have their coffee outside. We'll begin a new year with a new weekly commentator, Dr. Connie Lester, editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. It is the state's scholarly, peer-reviewed journal, and it's been around for a while now. And we'll visit the Air Force Space and Missile Museum. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. In the city of Tarpon Springs, you can listen to Greek music, try the tasty pastry baklava, have a meal of lamb stew or a unique Greek seafood dish, sip the licorice-flavored alcoholic beverage ouzo, and enjoy many other aspects of traditional Greek culture. You can see the neo-Byzantine-style architecture of St. Nicholas Greek Orthodox Church and watch the sponge divers unload their catch on the city dock downtown. Tarpon Springs has the largest percentage of Greek Americans of any city in the United States. Even before the first 500 Greek sponge divers arrived in Tarpon Springs in 1905, a thriving town was already in place. The Diston land purchase of 1881, when Hamilton Diston bought 4 million acres of land for 25 cents an acre, led to the establishment of Tarpon Springs. Diston brought businessman Anson Safford to Tarpon Springs to stimulate development. Tina Bukovalis is curator of arts and historical resources for the city of Tarpon Springs and says that Safford moved into a small dog trot style cracker house. They uh, improved the house by adding a second story and expanding it um, and it became quite a showcase uh, basically trying to show the elegant way that people could live in Florida uh, at a time when this was really in many ways still kind of a frontier town uh, but through the influence of Anson Stafford uh, and uh, Hamilton Diston and, and the wealthy northerners that came in, you know, there did, uh, Tarpon Springs did develop to, be, uh, to become one of the early uh, and very elegant resorts. The Victorian home that Safford created can be enjoyed today. The Safford House Museum features period furniture and original family artifacts that preserve the home as it was in 1883. Soon after Anson Safford began developing Tarpon Springs, the Orange Belt Railway came to the town in 1887. The train depot is now a museum. Sharon Sawyer is archivist for the Tarpon Springs Area Historical Society, which operates the museum. The building we're in was built in 1909 because the original railroad station burned down in 1908. And this was restored in 2005 to its original um, 
floors you'll notice in uh, the pine floors out front and also the warehouse floors in the back are the original. Uh, the walls we've left um, with the writing on it. And um, so this is, this was um, segregated when it was built. Uh, there's, if you go out front, there's a colored waiting room and a white waiting room. And th there was a wall in between the two that was torn down in the 70s, not until the 70s. Um, the station master's room is the next room over, and we have exhibits in that, and then the warehouse area we have um, pretty much the history of Tarpon Springs uh, that you can go through. So it's, it's a neat museum. Displays at the Tarpon Springs History Museum include profiles of prominent physicians, including Dr. Mary Jean Safford. Mary was Anson Safford's sister and is believed to be the first female physician in Florida. Shelving and bottles from the 1880s drugstore are also displayed, along with artifacts from the Orange Belt Railway. Sharon Sawyer. One thing uh, about the railroad, it was um, brought here by Peter Demons, Demons Landing in St. Petersburg. Uh, he, he brought the railroad from Sanford to Tarpon Springs and then on down to St. Petersburg. And it was supposed to be the longest um, 12 gauge, I guess it is, railroad in the United States at that time. So um, before the railroad came, everybody had to get here by boat or uh, wagon. So the railroad in 1887 made the big difference here in town, I believe. It was the sponge industry, though, that really put Tarpon Springs on the map. By the mid-1800s, there was a thriving sponge industry in the Florida Keys, but by the beginning of the 20th century, Tarpon Springs was the largest sponge port in the United States. While sponges in the Keys were harvested with long poles, in Tarpon Springs, Greek sponge divers donned canvas suits with round metal helmets. Tina Bukovalis explains what makes the Tarpon Springs community unique. Florida is the only place in the country that uh, sponges grow, and, and the sponge industry was the biggest maritime industry in Florida, and we're talking millions in the late 19th century, which was quite something. Um, and um, Key West at that time, you know, in the 19th century was a bigger producer, but uh, once uh, sponges were discovered in this area in 1873, the whole area from here up up to Apalachicola became a hotbed of sponging, and eventually um, Tarpon Springs became a market for sponges. Uh, and when Greeks came into this area as uh, sponge buyers, uh, John Kokoros, uh, he realized that the way sponges were harvested in Greece would uh, produce far more than the methods, the hooking methods they were using in Florida. So they brought over Greeks and. Um, uh, it was advertised that there was uh, a lot of business to be done here. So uh, at first, 500 came in 1905, and then within a couple years, there were 1,500, and there were lots of boats. And uh, it uh, very quickly made uh, Tarpon Springs the sponge capital of the world. Sp Tarpon Springs was a big, important town at a time when St. Pete was a, a wide place in the road. Uh, and there were buyers here from Europe. Uh, it, it was quite a place. Uh, and um, before long, I mean, within a couple decades, the Greeks were the majority 
or the, well, I would say they were the dominant population element because there were several population elements. There were the there's the Anglo element and the African American, which had a very big Bahamian influence because of the sponge industry. But for a long time, the Greeks were the dominant population element. So the fact that this was a big uh, pocket of Greek culture and has remained so. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine not long ago in Miami who's a cultural geographer, and she pointed out that this is the only place in Florida that has such a unique, ongoing, uh, whole cloth pocket of European settlement. There are places with Latin American settlement, West Indian settlement, but European communities, this is, this is unique in Florida. With the large influx of Greek sponge divers and their families to Tarpon Springs, businesses to serve them were established, including restaurants, grocery stores, bakeries, and coffee houses. St. Nicholas Greek Orthodox Church was constructed in 1907 and expanded in 1943 with marble imported from Greece. The unique Epiphany celebration held on January 6th attracts people from around the world. Following a ceremony at St. Nicholas, the congregation walks to the sponge docks downtown where a wooden cross is thrown into the water. The young man who retrieves the cross is believed to be blessed for the year. The Patriarch of Constantinople, who is the Greek Orthodox equivalent of the Pope, came to Tarpon Springs in 2006 for the 100th anniversary of the city's unique Epiphany celebration. Tita Bukovalis, former folklorist for the state of Florida, explains that there are many examples of Greek culture in Tarpon Springs. I think in, in all instances in which there are large um, bubbles, you know, of population, such as with Cubans in Miami, you know, or Greeks here, you get more of a whole cloth culture. And here, um, the culture has been brought over pretty much whole cloth. Uh, I mean, as, as one writer pointed out, um, when the Greeks came to here, they actually changed their life very little from what it was in Greece because the climatic conditions were very similar. They were in the same occupations. They were living together, you know, and eventually they brought their families over in a certain part of town. You know, they brought the priests and religion in. And basically, it was very much like living in Greece. And so even today, you know, after people have been here, some people for four or five generations, you know, depending how quickly and when they came over, you know. Um, there is still a big segment of the population that speaks Greek. I live in the part of town called Greek Town, and most of the people there are Greek, and most of the people there do speak Greek. And they get up in the morning and have Greek food and sweep out their courtyards, and which have various plants you might see in Greece, you know, and they'll have their coffee outside. And the old ladies and their headscarves will be going over to St. Michael's Chapel or St. Nicholas or whatever, or down to the bakery, the National Bakery down the street, which is a Greek bakery, or to Halki Market, which has been there for 100 years or so. Uh, the men will go, walk right by my house to go to the Caffeinea, which are traditional men's Greek coffee houses. Uh, a lot of them who are old divers and things will go down to the sponge docks, which is a few blocks down the street, and just hang out at the docks to, to, ha to hang out with other old guys and see what the divers and things are doing. You know, it's, uh, you know, the people with the gift shops, while it may look like tourist shops, the culture there is very much an active Greek culture. The dominant language is probably Greek. If you go down there, you sp I mean, if I go down there to go to the hockey market, I'll spend two hours, you know, talking to various people. You know, it's like living in a small Greek town uh, with all the ups and downs. <laughs>
The Greek history and culture of Tarpon Springs is preserved in a new heritage center with exhibits and artifacts and space for public gatherings. Greeks have the dominant culture in Tarpon Springs, but archivist Sharon Sawyer has lived in the city for almost 60 years and says that all people get along in this small community. The Greeks and the Anglos, everyone, as far as I can remember, got along. It was like a, a community project for all of us. Some of my best friends are Greek girls. Some of them are uh, cracker girls. You know, it's it's uh, just, it's still got that small community feeling about it. So there are a lot of people that have moved in, but it still has that small community feeling. You don't find that everywhere. A trip to downtown Tarpon Springs provides the opportunity to see spongers at work sailing into port on boats with unique Greek designs. Tina Bukovalis. There is a special kind of sponge boat that developed in the Aegean, which is called an Akdarmas, which is a type of trahandri, which is a, a type of Greek fishing boat. But this particular boat was designed for sponging, and some of the spongers swear that this is still the best design. Um, and uh, back in the early days and up until, you know, a few decades ago, these, these boats were being produced hundreds and hundreds were produced from here to Apalachicola because Greeks went all the way from here up the coast and were working in maritime industries. So, for instance, the one that's sitting in the middle of the sponge exchange as a display was built in Apalachicola and sailed down here for sale. But, um, yeah, these boats have a, a very different bow, you know, than, than most boats do, different design, you know, but they're very stable and uh, have all the right stuff, you know, to carry the sponges and everything. The last, um, the last boat builder, Greek boat builder, is George Sarukos, who got a, a received a Folk Heritage Award uh, in 2009, and there's only one working Greek sponge boat, um, and it's his last boat that he built, and that's owned by Tasso Karastinos, who, who also won a Folk Heritage Award in 2000. 10 uh, as a sponge diver and captain. The history and culture of Tarpon Springs is preserved at the Safford House Museum, the Train Depot Museum, and the Heritage Center. While tourism has eclipsed sponge diving as the economic engine driving Tarpon Springs, it's still the living, active maritime community that attracts tourists to the downtown docks. It is a working waterfront, and um, although the sponge industry has shrunk, um, a lot of the boats, but not all of the boats, still dock there. The city has 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 essentially given them this part of the downtown working docks uh, to have their boats, and they conduct do conduct their business from there. So during a significant part of the year, from from about the beginning of April and of March, you know, to November through November, uh, the the spongers will be. Uh, coming in and going out, and um, you know when they're not uh, uh, having downtime and working on their boats and out there, they are loading, unloading sponges, processing sponges. They are actually the best ambassadors for the town because almost all of them are very articulate and very willing to talk to people and explain what they're doing, and you know are essentially demonstrating the processes right there on the docks. And then, and then surrounding the docks area across the street are various shops. Um, many of them are gift shops, but there's also quite a few restaurants. And it's not just for tourists. That's where locals go, too, all, all the time, you know, so people can experience culture there. Or, you know, some of the shops are full of Greek 
CDs or videos, again, you know, where locals go, you know, so um, people can still come in and have access to Greek culture that way. Tina Bukovalis is Curator of Arts and Historical Resources for the City of Tarpon Springs. We also spoke with Sharon Sawyer, archivist for the Tarpon Springs Area Historical Society. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokmarkle. To find out more about Tarpon Springs and their unique Epiphany celebration, go to myfloridahistory.org and watch Episode 8 of our television series, Florida Frontiers. That's myfloridahistory.org. Birds flying high, you know how I feel. Sun in the sky, you know how I feel. Breeze drifting on by, you know how I feel. It's a new dawn, it's a new day. It's a new life for me, yeah. It's a new dawn, it's a new day. It's a new life for me. And I'm feeling good Joining us now is Dr. Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of Riches of Central Florida, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. First of all, Connie, welcome to Florida Frontiers as a regular contributor. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, as I mentioned, you're Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly, Let's start with that. What is the Florida Historical Quarterly, and how does it differ from other Florida Historical Society publications? Well, the Quarterly is a publication of the Florida Historical Society. It is the state's scholarly, peer-reviewed journal, and it's been around for a while now. We're in our 99th volume this year. And who is it that submits to the journal for publication? We have a variety of authors who submit, ranging all the way from full professors to graduate students to museum curators and archivists, librarians. A lot of lawyers submit articles to us, and a lot of people who are, I would classify as community scholars. They are people who know a lot about the area where they live, and they research that history deeply, and they submit to us as well. What is a peer-reviewed journal, and and how does that review process work? Well, a peer-reviewed journal means that when manuscripts are submitted to us, we review them in-house first to make sure they meet our criteria, and then we send them out to scholars who review them and look at um, the way in which the questions are posed in the article, the kinds of, of research that was done for the article, uh, the way it's written, and, uh, you know, just generally what the article is about. They then send us their recommendations. They oftentimes, in fact, you know, we're sending them out to scholars, so of course they're going to do this. Uh, They make suggestions about what should be done to elevate the tone of the article, the research that was done. They send it back to us. It's finally my decision as to whether it will be published. But for the most part, I take the recommendations of the scholars who have reviewed these 
because it's in their field of study. So, for instance, if I got an article about the Civil War, I would send it to both to scholars whose specialty is the Civil War and to scholars whose specialty is Florida history so that I get both sides of it. Well, when some people see a, a bunch of small print at the bottom of some of the pages, uh, they, they might get intimidated. Why all the footnotes in the Florida Historical Quarterly? Uh, don't they just get in the way of people enjoying the articles? I don't think so. Actually, I think it, um, it enhances the, the article for people if they know what they're looking at. So the footnotes tell you what research was done. It tells you if they were doing primary research, that is, they were looking at documents and images and perhaps even material culture things to formulate their ideas about the past. They tell you what they looked at, and they tell you where you can find it. They also tell you what secondary sources they used. So whose work, who had previously published on this area, whose work did they consult? And you can, if you know a lot about the subject, you know whose work they didn't consult as well. And that helps you evaluate the article. You can read the article without ever looking at the footnotes if you want to, and I'm sure many people do. But it helps you see how the author arrived at the conclusions they drew. And people can just skip them and, if they want to and come back to them. They can. They can. Well, thanks so much, Connie. And again, welcome to Florida Frontiers. I'm happy to be here. Dr. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of Riches of Central Florida, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. It's a new dawn. It's a new day. It's a new life. This is Florida Frontiers. Florida has always played a vital role in America's space program, and as Holly Baker reports, that will continue. She takes us to the Air Force Space and Missile Museum. On December 9, 2020, Vice President Mike Pence announced that Cape Canaveral Air Force Station and Patrick Air Force Base were being renamed as Space Force installations. The newly renamed Cape Canaveral Space Force Station is home to the United States Space Force's 45th Space Wing, located on Cape Canaveral in Brevard County, Florida. Cape Canaveral Space Force Station began in 1950 as the Joint Long Range Proving Ground, joint meaning that the three major military branches, the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force, had test operations on the Cape. Museum Director Jamie Draper oversees the Air Force Space and Missile Museum at the Cape Canaveral Space Force Station. The first rocket launch occurred in 1950, and it was, in fact, this year we saw the 70th anniversary of that, and that was a Bumper 8 and then Bumper 7, both Werner von Braun projects, and they're basically modified German B-2 rockets with a WAC Corporal upper stage. And throughout the 50s, 60s, and even into the 70s, there were a lot of military missile programs that were developed and tested out on the Cape. There's a lot of hangars on the Cape, and uh, most Air Force hangars 
housed aircraft. Well, our hangars are unique in that they were essentially missile assembly buildings. And so it's really cool that the Cape's history with rocket launches predates the existence of NASA. And so military, was, they were lighting stuff off out here like crazy left and right, not just for defense programs, but for early space programs. And you see that with Mercury especially. And Gemini, Geminis were all launched off Titans. And what were Titans? They were ICBMs deployed as part of our nuclear arsenal. Cape Canaveral Space Force Station was the launch site of the first U.S. Earth satellite, the first U.S. astronaut, and the first U.S. astronaut in orbit. It's also where many of today's rocket launches take place. The U.S. Air Force Space and Missile Museum preserves the history of the Cape launches and highlights the activities at Cape Canaveral Space Force Station from 1950 to the present day. The main museum facility is Launch Complex 26, where we launched our very first satellite into orbit with Explorer 1 in 1958. That's my office. <laughs> That's, my office is on the spot where we launched our very first satellite, where America joined the space race. And every day I get chills walking into my office because of that. But the blockhouse is there. And then there's an exhibit hall where we currently feature the first Space Force-related exhibit, uh, museum exhibit in the country. And then uh, Launch Complex 5 and 6 is on the grounds. That's where the first Mercury missions flew. It's incredibly cool. But um, that is more NASA-administered and part of their bus tours, but it, it is on our grounds. And then the other public space we have on the Cape is Hangar C. Hangar C is basically where we display the crown jewels. There are at least 25 to 30 rocket and missile and capsule restorations in that space. Hangar C, the first hangar at Cape Canaveral Space Force Station, was built in 1953 to service the first four launch pads. Today, it's been renovated to store space artifacts and eventually will be open to guests. The Sand Space History Center is an extension of the museum that's available free to the public. It's located just outside the south gate of Cape Canaveral Space Force Station. The museum showcases rockets, missiles, and other out-of-this-world space history artifacts. We do present some rocket engines. There's an Atlas rocket engine. There's an upper stage Titan engine in there. We've got this nose cone from a Jupiter that is phenomenal. It's a first full-size re-entry vehicle to go into space, come back, and be retrieved. It essentially showed the effectiveness of a blade of heat shields, which went on through so many other space programs. And we have it. It's here on the Space Coast. It's not in a warehouse, a Smithsonian warehouse tucked away in the catacombs. It's prominently displayed for the general public there at the History Center. So that's just one of dozens of great pieces of aerospace history in that space. Devoted volunteers at the Air Force Space and Missile Museum have taken on a variety of tasks, including digitization and restoration projects, preserving space history for the future. Jamie Draper. History is made every day out here, new history. Each one of these launches is historic in some way. So we had a Falcon 9 launch today. I took my family out. We got a nice view fairly close <laughs> here to roar of those Merlin engines on that Falcon 9. That was the first of their newest generation of Dragon capsules for resupply missions. So once again, 
more history made today. So the scope of history on the Cape will just continue to grow and grow and grow with all of these new programs. So it'll never, it'll never get dull. I can guarantee that. <laughs> For more information about the Air Force Space and Missile Museum, go to afspacemuseum.org. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, find us on Facebook and visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Happy New Year from the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.